Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Ron Paul Liberty Report. With us today is Dale McAdams, Don Daniel. Good to see you. <laughs> good morning, Dr. Paul. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine, thank you. Good. Get ready to go. All right, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, we're going to start off with, uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson. I didn't tell you that. <laughs> My favorite president. Your yeah. favorite president. Now, Woodrow Wilson uh, was making the world safe for democracy, and he pumped the country up. And he went into a war. But as time went on, more and more people understood that whole situation. Totally unnecessary. The war was essentially over. Yeah, yeah. And he just wanted to get in at the end of the war and get to remake uh, the Middle East and whatnot. And also set the stage for World War II. But it looks like we're, we're in something similar to this. Not right now. We're worrying about tanks going into a very dangerous spot in Ukraine up against uh, you know the Russian government and Russian territory, just looking for trouble. Well, the last one didn't work out so bad, and uh, and we we use this analogy because they're they're still worrying about World War One tanks, but uh, this one's probably more dangerous because if things go out of hand and gets out of control, then the weaponry is much greater than it was in World War. Uh, one, we were barely using fighter airplanes at that time, but the, this is this is so unnecessary. But now it looks like there's an agreement. The Germans had a good reason not to do it. You'd think they'd be independent enough to not get uh, do exactly as we tell them. And uh, what? And finally, we've gone along with it, even though there's a little bit of discussion here. Pentagon isn't rolling over because they they have to get uh, you know practical minded every once in a while, and they're saying that it might not be the smartest thing in the world yeah. to send these t tanks. But I think this might be a demonstration that uh, national defense uh, and, and war isn't the issue as much as money and making tanks. You know, we're getting low on our weapons. We have to refurbish and we need to spend more money. Yeah. Now, the argument is not not for, uh, maybe we ought to back off on Ukraine, giving it all away, even though this is what we're doing here. But uh, we're low on weaponry for ourselves. So the military industrial complex, I'm sure are feeling very pleased. They're not upset about this little debate going on about how many more weapons we can send and how long this is going to last. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. You know, I was in fact it's interesting that you mentioned Wilson because I was listening to a really uh, interesting interview that Judge Napolitano did with Colonel McGregor yesterday. And McGregor, who of course is an historian among many other things, a military expert, but he he went down the list of all the things that FDR did to provoke Japan into attacking Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I mean, a very objective way, including leading, leaving the Pacific fleet there when it should have gone back to the Puget Sound where it was located. All sorts of things that he was, his staff was telling him, you shouldn't do this. And he said, never mind, keep doing it. Never, never mind, keep doing it. It was very clear he wanted to provoke a Japanese reaction so that he could justify the war that he wanted. And it really does seem like, you know, history is repeating itself with this announcement yesterday, uh, and it's kind of a farce in a way because the, uh, the Germans said, okay, well, we'll send some Leopard tanks, but America needs to send some of its Abrams tanks first. And that's when the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee said, uh, Michael McCall 
said, well, why don't we just send one and then the Germans will be on the hook for sending the leopards in. So the whole thing is a farce. So it turns out everything broke down yesterday. Germany announced it would send the, the, the leopards. The U.S. announced it would send the Abrams. But the optics of this are obviously very similar, I think, to what FDR did and you say what, what Wilson did, which is imagine what it would look, what it looks like to see German leopard tanks with the iron crosses on them barreling through the exact same territory that they barreled through in the Second World War. It's, it's, it's such, when we don't realize it because it didn't happen on our soil, but I would imagine for the residents of the former USSR, this image in their mind of German tanks again rolling through our territory must be just unreal. You know, we are all <clears throat> often saying that the American people have short memories. Uh, they go through episodes and they forget the, about what the Vietnam War was like. They don't do much to stay out and they have these short memories. But the military people, the people who are really in charge of uh, all these very, very dangerous weapons, uh, they, they have short memories too. Either they're short or they know exactly what they're doing and they don't care. And uh, unfortunately, that's possible, even though I guess I have to give them a break. They're sometimes just pure politicians and profit mongering, and uh, they, they don't know any better and they don't care and they don't have a conscience to worry about, you know, what might happen as long as they have the money in the bank. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, you know, to, just to cap this whole thing off, there's an amazing clip of the German foreign minister, a young woman, uh, uh, Annalena Baerbock uh, was quoted, let's put this clip up, let's watch this clip of her basically essentially saying, using these exact words, we are at war with Russia. It's pretty amazing to listen to. And therefore, I've said already in the last days, yes, we have to do more to defend Ukraine. Yes, we have to do more also on tanks. But the most important and the crucial part is that we do it together and that we do not do the blame game in Europe because we are fighting a war against Russia and not against each other. Thank you. It's pretty remarkable. She's very young. I wonder if she studied any history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, I, I'm afraid they're going to make this step. You know, they're still saying, well, I think it was one statement. This isn't going to be next week. They can't yeah. get the tanks ready next week. <laughs> it's going to take a while. Who knows what it's going to be like when the tanks finally get shipped on the ships to, to go over there, yeah. you know. Or they, uh, of course, if they need to speed things up, they're always capable of doing that too. And that would be more dangerous because the weaponry that is available, if they were uh, convinced that this is now a real a war yeah and uh, of course uh, I, I don't think they can predict uh, exactly how the Russians are going to respond and uh, unless they listen to what they're saying because they so far they haven't hedged on what they they said would happen they drew the red line and they lived up to it yeah. but uh, they don't uh, we on the, our side of NATO they don't talk much about that they don't talk much about it well let's look at some of the <laughs> details this is from the Wall Street Journal put up that first clip um, and this is the article we're talking about, and it was, of course, written about on antiwar.com, as usual, doing a great job. U.S. leans toward providing Abrams tanks to Ukraine. We've heard now that they are going to do that. Delivers would be part of a deal to enable provision of German-built Leopard tanks to Ukraine. Let's put on the next one. This is from the 
article on antiwar.com explaining it, said the announcement would be part of a broader diplomatic understanding with Germany in which Ber Berlin would agree to send a smaller number of its own Leopard 2 tanks and would approve the delivery of other German-made tanks by Poland and other nations. Uh, let's go to the next one, please, because this explains how many Leopards are going to be going there. Der Spiegel reported that Germany is ready to send Ukraine 14 Leopard 2S from its military stocks and will sign off from delivery uh, from Poland and an ally in Scandinavia. So we're talking about 14 tanks from Germany to Ukraine, and they're probably Poland will put a few in there. They'll throw a few tanks here and there. Uh, how many the U.S. will send? We don't know. It looks like um, 30 to 50 is the number that the U.S. will send. And so on one hand, yes, it's an escalation. These are heavy tanks, they're heavy weapons, but on the other hand, we're talking about maybe a total of 100 or even 200 tanks. I don't think most Americans who watch the mainstream media understand that Ukraine started this war with about 1,500 tanks, and they were given an additional 700 tanks by the West. So we're talking about you know, anywhere close to 2,000 tanks. They've all been blown up. So sending another 100 or 200 is not really going to make a difference. And as you pointed out, there's the whole issue of how are they going to run these tanks? You don't just, it's not like, you know, my car outside, you basically, you turn the key and you go driving. These are pretty sophisticated uh, pieces of equipment. We're talking about months, maybe years. And in fact, the U.S. says it'll be probably at least a year before we get these tanks in yeah, there. You know, back in the 70s, uh, we had debates in the Congress and more money for more tanks. And I kept asking, why are we building these tanks? Are we going to have a tank war? Because <laughs> the only enemy we had were the Soviets. I said, are they going to come across, uh, you know, Alaska or someplace? But uh, that, that's, that's a whole thing that they, uh, you know, seem, seem to be prepared for, uh, you, you know, what's going on. But I, I was just wondering... You, you know, uh, and I've talked to you about this a little bit because I'd like to do a program a little bit different. We do real good updates, I believe, you know, especially since uh, not very many people have from the very beginning talked about 2014. We talked about 2014 uh, when it was happening, when we were involved in a coup setting the stage up for this. But I think it's still important for the American people, those who are curious about this, to understand more of what was going on in Ukraine between the end of World War II up until 2014. Yeah. Because that was setting the stage for it. And who were who the culprits? You know, I think there's a few times that we implied or made promises and led them to believe that we would do certain things. And just like in uh, economics, we have defaulted on so many times in our promises that uh, we default all the time when it comes to monetary issues. And uh, I would say that we have defaulted on our promises on foreign policy as well. And if we were looking for them, we probably could find a, a few other ones. But I, I think this one, this one is very important to understand you know, how we have gotten to this point where we're, you know, on the verge of a war with Russia, you yeah. know. And, uh, and once again, you mentioned about, uh, you know, how, how they ignored the problems uh, about uh, and the efforts by FDR yeah. going, going into Japan. And that, that, that was just hard. I, wouldn't, I didn't believe that for 
a decade or yeah, two yeah. because I didn't want to. I it's impossible. <clears throat> Nobody would uh, deliberately set the stage for a bigger war. Yeah. But uh, I'm sadly, uh, I believe that was what was going on. Only a monster <laughs> or a demon would do that. And I think we got our answer. Now, it's funny you mentioned the history of the Ukraine thing because I think over the weekend I was looking for some articles <laughs> to put up on the Ron Paul Institute website. And I went back and I looked at some of your statements from around 2004. And there was a, there was a great piece that I put up, 2004, about the U.S. meddling in the Ukrainian elections. I you know, can't believe that. You were on the mark. You were on the mark. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, you're right. It didn't start last February. It didn't start in 2014. <coughs> it started way before that. But let's look, <coughs> speaking of the um, tanks, let's look at this next clip. This is from the same article from antiwar.com. And this is a very, very important point. Uh, to make, if we can put that up, uh, that next clip. So military, and this is interesting, this is an important thing, Dr. Paul, in my opinion. Military officials have argued publicly that the Abrams tanks require a substantial amount of training and logistics support and therefore aren't appropriate for this conflict, for this moment in the conflict. Uh, in a contentious meeting last week at Ramstein Air Base in Germany, the U.S. and its allies failed to persuade Germany to allow other nations to send the German-made tanks, exposing the first rift. And then it says, previously the Pentagon had ruled out providing the tanks to Ukraine, saying they're too complicated for Ukrainians to maintain and operate. But the White House and the State Department officials were described as being more open to providing the Abrams to break the diplomatic logjam. So, here you have our military, and there are people in the military who are very smart, and they know these things very well, saying this is not an appropriate tool. It will not change things. There's a huge downside. And then you have the political people in the State Department and the White House saying, we don't care. We don't care what you say. We don't care about your military expertise. We want the tanks there for political reasons, and they're going to go there. And that's really interesting to hear that being overruled. And in fact, in the same podcast I was listening to with the judge and Colonel McGregor, uh, the colonel who actually is a tanker, he drove his tank into Baghdad in the first Gulf War. He knows what he's talking about. He said himself, the Abrams are <coughs> not appropriate because of their gas turbine engine. They essentially use like a jet engine, <coughs> and they can go very fast. But the problem is they... As he said, I'm not an expert, but he is. They pull up a lot of debris from under the ground, and that means they break down all the time, and they suck up an enormous amount of fuel, which is the one thing they don't have there. So, interestingly enough, the political minds say this is a ridiculous, stupid thing to do, but the politicians, that's another story. And uh, that sort of explains this whole thing about uh, <clears throat> what Roosevelt was doing. They have ulterior motives. It makes no sense. And a lot of people realize it's wrong, and then it turns out that way, and nobody seems to get punished for it. But the goals are important. So maybe their goals aren't anywhere close to what our goals might be, or some of the military people who are a little smarter and a little bit more honorable arguing the downside of this. And uh, it's sort of like uh, the street chaos. The chaos on the street, we, when, we, when we look at uh, you know, Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the way the police are handled and nobody's punished and they just go and tear up the cities, and you know, why would they do this? Why don't they crack down on yeah. it? And then the only thing that can explain it 
is they want it to happen. There is a goal. There's a benefit from that. So somewhere in here, exactly, and that, that gets, unfortunately, in understanding it, it gets into the subjective area. Why do people do it? Are they stupid or do they have another plan? And as time goes on, I, I search more for the plan uh, because uh, I think common sense would tell them that they're looking for trouble. Yeah. But uh, it's probably a mixture of things, but uh, it's, it's, it's just too bad because to, to me, to sort it out and find the, uh, the perfect uh, group of people to manage affairs like this and manage intervention, whether it's intervention in economics or intervention overseas, it's, it's impossible to do it. There's too many variables. That's why the position is much easier to defend morally and as, as a practicality is just stay out of those troubles. Yeah. You know, you, you shouldn't, how do you, how do you manage a fiat currency? You just need smart people doing that. You can't do it. It's the, it's that problem. Inter, uh, if you know, foreign interventionism is a problem and, uh, and you will have these arguments. Thank goodness there's a few people speaking up, but, uh, you, you know, and I've been trying to review, you know, what was, what was going on with, with the Kennedy assassination and the extent to which our CIA went and all the people that were killed afterwards, anybody who had the slightest bit of information. I mean, they are obsessed uh, with, with these policy things. And uh, it, that, that is where the problem is. So we need more, more people to get out of government schools. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, here's an interesting aspect of it. It's almost <laughs> a comical aspect because, as you know, the, Bal the Baltic states are the most aggressive toward Russia. And yeah, they were sucked into the USSR and they're still bitter about that understandable but they also have some weird ambitions for territory and Radek Sikorsky who was a Polish foreign minister back at the time of the Maidan coup in 2014 he actually leaked something out that was interesting which is he's claiming that the Polish government at the beginning of this conflict uh, early last year almost a year ago they had designs on part of western Ukraine because it used to be part of Poland Lvov was part of Poland and of course before that it's part of Prussia as Lemberg um, and Lithuania is also interested in part of Ukraine that it used to have. And here's the next, this is almost comical if you look at this next clip. Here's a Lithuanian Ministry of Defense. Lithuania's Ministry of Defense on military support to Kiev. We don't have tanks, but we have options. So they want to, they would give us some tanks if they had them, but they don't have them. So <laughs> too bad about that. And let's, do, let's just finish this one out really quick. If we can look at this next one, just a couple of uh, updates so people will understand that tanks will not be arriving uh, tomorrow. Uh, and this is from Russia Primavera International News. The total Ukraine was promised 113 Leopard 2s, 14 Challenger 2s, those are from the UK, and 30 to 50 Abrams tanks. The delivery timeline may stretch out for more than a year. And again, we're talking about maximum 200 tanks. Uh, they started with over a thousand, they've all been blown up. And let's do one more. This is um, just to underscore this point about the timeline. Uh, this is an ABC News article. The U.S. promised Ukraine Abrams tanks, but Kiev will be able to receive them not earlier than in a year. And that was reported by the ABC. So you have to ask yourself, the military says they're useless in this conflict. They won't get there for over a year, and we see that Russian is making advances right now toward Bakhmut. So the question is, on the battlefield, and the, and the colonel will, uh, has underscored this many, many times, on the battlefield they mean nothing, 
but on the soft battlefield of PR, I think that's what this is all about. Yeah, and, and my comment was, how does anybody know what it's going to be like in one year yeah. from now? They might, oh, we don't, I don't think we need these tanks yeah. anymore. Yeah. We need bigger bombers or we need more missiles and that sort of thing. And the whole whole situation would change. Yeah. Well, that was the thing, too. You know, that was, oh, the, the, the Javelins are going to win the war. They didn't. The HIMARS are going to win the war. They, did, they didn't win the war. Now it's the tanks. What's going to be next? You know, <laughs> F-16s, whatever. B-52s, who knows? But let's move on to the next one, Dr. Paul, because this is kind of interesting, I think, if we can put on that next clip. Um, McCarthy has formally rejected the appeal of the, Senate, of the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, to have Adam Schiff and uh, Eric Swalwell on the House Intel. They have been on that committee, and McCarthy says, no way. These guys are off the committee. Yeah, you'd think that uh, somebody would have a memory on how, how the Republicans were treated about the uh, commission, the yeah. study. No, the, the January 6th. January yeah. 6th. Uh, I mean, they weren't even allowed to have the material uh, as a defense lawyer would have to be. And they put they put non-Republicans on it. Yeah, the pretense there might be a label. But it was the principle was the same. They struck them off. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a different committee. And they'll argue, oh, no, this is different this time. But uh, the whole thing is it's politics. And uh, that's what's uh, that's what's uh, that's what's going on, but uh, it's it's uh, it's I don't I don't fault McCarthy for this. Yeah. I mean, matter, matter of fact, it, uh, the the more of that that they do because it's it's and they ought to show and and I think McCarthy did make an effort to show exactly wh why he was doing this and. Uh, and made it a little bit more diplomatic than I think how they uh, treated the Republicans. Yeah, it, 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 he went out of his way to say, look, we know that we were kept off the January 6th committee for political reasons. I don't want to do that. I have some very practical reasons. He said these two members can sit on other committees, but not on the House Intel Committee. And in fact, we do have a little clip from him, that second tweet, if we can put it up. It's a video clip, so you'll want to listen in, Dr. Paul of McCarthy explaining his rationale for keep, keeping them off the committee. If we can find that, uh, so here we go. Okay, thanks. What did Adam Schiff do as the chairman of the Intel Committee? What Adam Schiff did, use his power as a chairman and lie to the American public. Even the inspector general said it. When Devin Nunes put out a memo, he said it was false. When we had a laptop, he used it before an election to be politics and say that it was false and said it was the Russians. When he knew different, when he knew the intel, if you talk to um, John Radcliffe, DNI, he came out ahead of time and says there's no intel to prove that, and he used his position as chairman, knowing he has information the rest of America does not, and lied to the American public. When a whistleblower came forward, he said he, he did not know the individual, even though his staff had met with him and set it up. So no, he does not have a right to sit on that. But I will not be like Democrats and play politics with these, where they removed Republicans from committees and all committees. So yes, he can serve on a committee, but he will not serve on intel because it goes to the national security of America. And I will I always put them first. I think it's a good point that he makes, Dr. Well, Paul. I yeah. guess well done. Yeah, I think it's well done. Adam Smith or Adam Schiff used his position on the committee, pretending to have intel about RussiaGate and Trump's collusion with the Russians, and he knew it was a lie, but he pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. I think. I think it does disqualify him, and I'm not a fan of Kevin McCarthy. I know you aren't either, but I think it does certainly make sense from Boy, this perspective. That, that's for sure. 
And uh, I imagine that will go on for a while before, before that is settled. But uh, if, if that tone remains and ha has documents and, and try to avoid some of that rhetoric stuff, but uh, I'm sure it'll be, uh, it'll be at times fun to watch. Yeah, fun to watch. Of course, they're using it for some China bashing because Swalwell apparently was friendly with the Chinese gal yeah. who had some dubious. We can't cheer some of that stuff yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, you know, that's, that's how it goes. So we'll keep an eye on it. I think it's probably a smart move. Uh, to do that. I mean, just for national security, the guy's a total liar. And you called for him to be kicked out of Congress a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. You were awfully mean. Uh, but I guess we'll move on to the next one, if you're ready. Our, okay, our last good. little story, and it's similar in a way. Um, and it kind of, this is the category of who doesn't have classified documents at home? <laughs> well, I don't, and I know you don't, but Michael Pence does. Let's put this up uh, real quick because this came out yesterday that classified documents found at Mike Pence's house. Um, oh my gosh, Mike, we hardly knew you. Let's put on the next one. Here's what it's about. Um, on January 18th, Pence's team notified the National Archives that documents were inadvertently boxed and transported. It doesn't work that way. Um, and here's a quote from them. The findings at Pence's uh, residence comes as President Biden is facing mounting criticism, which also had come from Pence over the discovery of classified materials. So it's kind of interesting timing. I don't know how you feel, Dr. Paul. Maybe I'm feeling conspiratorial this morning. But just when the heat is turned up on Biden, Mike Pence comes up and says, I've got some too. I've got some too. <laughs> he it's needed pretty a little, weird. Bit, little bit of attention. Yeah, I guess so. No, it, it's uh, running a systematic expectation of how, how this is coming about. First, it was Trump. He was the bad guy. Yeah. And uh, the Democrats were really, really piling on. But lo and behold, this thing on Mike Pence comes and it probably wasn't an active. I think there is a conspiracy by Democrats against Biden to take him out of the 2024 election. And so they're, they're out to get him. So now it became Trump versus uh, the, uh, the uh, Biden, which one, which one was the worst. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, the, the, uh, the, the Democrats, you know, some of the, the loyal Democrats are saying, oh, this is completely different, <laughs> you know, completely different, which is a bit of a stretch. But then Biden gets into trouble as, as a vice president. And, uh, and, and then there's an argument about that. Is a vice president different than a president? I happen to think there are. So there is a difference in my view. And the difference is that uh, that a vice president and a president has different authorities to, to uh, man manage these documents. And then, then we have Mike Pence. But you know, in all of this, if you add up all the nonsense, all the paper they're finding, everything it would, the president had, Trump and Biden and, uh, and also Pence, I would say that's minuscule to the number of pages and the corruption of the Hillary system. Yeah. And yeah. when have we heard very much about it? And, and the, uh, the last time I read something, they said, oh, that was she. Oh, she destroyed everything, so we can't do much about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that tampering with evidence? <laughs> she, she, she's, she must be a much more thorough individual in handling this kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I mentioned it the other day, but Peter Van Buren had a great piece that we had up on our site <clears throat> about why hers was the most damaging. Exactly what you say, because what she had on her server was basically openly available to anyone. The Russians could have hacked it, the <laughs> Chinese could have hacked it, the Cubans, could, the Ethiopians could have hacked it. 
Um, it was pretty amazing that she had these things wide open. Uh, and the other thing, though, about the about the Biden uh, papers, which is interesting, and Tucker Carlson did a great monologue. I watched a little bit of it um, this morning. He did it last night, where he was citing Miranda Devine, who is actually one of the last real journalists. She works for the New York Post. She's been on the Hunter Biden back, uh, uh, laptop story from day one. He talked about uh, something that she wrote about a memo that Hunter Biden <coughs> wrote to one of his colleagues at Burisma. That's where he met that he had $80,000 a month job. Not bad work for not having to show up. All you have to do is sit at home and smoke uh, whatever they were smoking. But nevertheless, um, that he wrote this memo that looked exactly like something out of the State Department classified document. And now we know that those classified documents were at the house he was staying. So the question is, is old Hunter Biden out there leafing through these things and making a Xerox and sending them over to his business partners in Ukraine. That's the real scandal, I think. You know, what if, what if all of a sudden we had an administration and a confirmation that, well, we need to reveal this stuff. Everybody, everybody that shouldn't have it has it. So why don't we make all this available? Everything that has been involved in this classification, just open it up and put it out there and let, let the people read it. My guess is, it would be very boring. They don't wouldn't know what they're doing, and they'd lose lose interest in it. Except for the political stuff. If you didn't have this political stuff, uh, it, it would have no meaning. But oh no, it's national security. We have to protect it. And yet, at the same time, their national security is to use the CIA and the FBI to, to uh, increase our danger and not help us at all. And so I I think that uh, this is way blown. It's it's 98% political, yeah. and maybe maybe there's something in there. But uh, I just I don't think there are any real secrets that mean, oh, we just read the Soviets are going to come back, and they have this bomb, <laughs> so we better build these shelters again. You know, they're not gonna, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, that's a great suggestion, though. As the Twitter files did to show the government collusion with Twitter, we should have, you know, the... Uh, the, the classified papers files, you know, <laughs> where we actually see what they were and see if they were important at all anyway. But I'm, I'm going to close out, I think, if you're ready. I want to thank all of our <coughs> viewers and listeners, especially, uh, who listen to the show. We've got a lot of listeners out there who only listen to the audio part, and we don't thank them enough. Uh, but we do notice Chris gives us the numbers of our listeners, uh, and we really appreciate all of you. Please hit like. Please subscribe to whatever place you like to watch or listen to the show, whether it's Rumble or YouTube uh, or anywhere else, SoundCloud, what have you, please subscribe, please share, please give us a thumbs up and help us uh, to get the show more widely known. Uh, and again, thanks for tuning in, Dr. Paul. Very good. You know, when I was uh, in the presidential campaign, I remember we had a fair number of uh, debates in 07 and 08. And uh, there was a time when, uh, okay, today we're going to have a debate over economic policy. Okay, that's good. So we'll do that. And then the next time they say, well, now we're going to have, uh, the next go around, we're going to have a debate on foreign policy. And I got to thinking, and I think I did get a chance to express myself. Well, why is it so different? How can you have foreign policy issues without dealing economic policy? You run up these deficits and, and you, oh, but that's all done in the name of national security. Uh, social policy is all done for helping the poor and the unemployed, this sort of thing. So 
that that is uh, that is an artificial separation because it shouldn't be that complicated. Some people think that I make it oversimplified, but I don't think it has to be more than that because the Constitution is uh, available to a lot of people and they don't have to have a PhD to read it and know know what it says. But basically, the theory and the thrust of the Constitution is the government should be non-interventionist. They should stay out of our houses. They should give us our privacy. They should stay out of the economy. They should stay out of our affairs. And they should stay out of the affairs of other nations. And non-interventionism is one thing. It goes to both areas. And uh, that is a basic principle. If you don't understand and know what non-intervention is, and that it means volunteerism and people don't, aren't forced by the government on everything that they do, uh, then, then we don't live in a free country. And I think more and more people today are starting to realize, you know, that seems right. We don't live in a really a free country, but we have to do it. We have to do it because now we now we have COVID. What are we going to do without the government? Well, we'd have been a lot better off without the government over COVID or or being involved in the coup, which started this thing in 2014 in Ukraine. So non-intervention and volunteerism is a far cry better than the kind of nonsense that Republicans and Democrats basically promote as a bipartisan agreement. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today to the Liberty Report. Please come back soon.